Alright guys, welcome back to episode 54 of the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. I'm your host, once again, Robbie Burke. And on this episode, I had the pleasure in interviewing Brett Bartholomew. Brett Bartholomew is a strength and conditioning coach for Exos in the United States. On this episode, me and Brett discussed many topics including Brett's background, Brett's influences, problems that Brett sees within the strength and conditioning profession, program design, periodization, energy system development and much, much more. Brett will be coming over to Ireland to help teach the Phase 1 Mentorship for Exos alongside Barry Sullen. The date for that mentorship is August 18th to the 21st and the venue for that mentorship is the Nana Facility out in Blanchardstown. More details about that mentorship can be found in the show notes. Alright guys, let's get into the interview with Brett. It was a really great show and I hope you guys really, really enjoy it. Okay, Coach Brett Bartholomew, it's an absolute pleasure and honour to have you on this podcast. Just for our listeners who mightn't be too familiar with who you are, just fill us in on your background. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Happy to be a part of it. Um, my background, this is my 10th uh, year now coaching uh, elite athletes. I started as a boxer myself in college, a U.S. Olympic amateur. Um, I started training other fighters in exchange for my training. Uh, prior to that, you know, I'd just done, uh, you know, when you're a teenager, personal training, read everything you could actually got into strength and conditioning uh, because it helped save my life. When I was in high school, I had a serious issue where I was in a hospital ICU for about six months, and I had lost a dramatic amount of body weight, and uh, my liver and kidney enzymes were failing, uh, heart wasn't in too good a shape, uh, picked up a couple books uh, when I had gotten healthy enough to be able to leave the hospital for a little day pass, as they called it, and uh, those books focused on nutrition and, and strength and conditioning, and I knew I needed to rebuild my body if I wanted to get my life back, so I started learning how to do that, became infatuated with performance and, and strength and conditioning and, and what it could do after uh, it helped me gain about 35 pounds and, and get me back on track and, and to a healthy lifestyle, so I wanted to do the same for others. So after training fighters, after getting my health back, I, I interned at Athletes Performance, which is what it was then called, now Exos, of course, at the Florida location in 2008. Uh, then volunteered at the University of Nebraska, strength and conditioning, which is where uh, a lot of the team side of things over here in the state started, especially in collegiate side. Mm. Um, just with their tradition and Boyd Epley and everything they had done, I really wanted to have that experience to learn from some of the best on the team side. Went and got my master's degree at Southern Illinois University. Uh, my undergraduate degree was from Kansas State. Uh, my graduate degree focused a lot on motor learning aspect of strength and conditioning and and the cueing side of things and how what we say and what we do with our athletes really matters uh, more than just uh, what meets the eye usually and, and how your words can really influence sports performance. After that, came back, started working for the company full time. Uh, first at the uh, Florida location once again with special forces, uh, high school athletes, different ranges of elite athletes, whether it's Major League Baseball or American football. And then finally, that turned into uh, the position I'm in now, which I'm the director of off-season NFL preparation for the company. Uh, also help part-time in an education role, but mainly service our elite athlete division out here. Awesome stuff. Brett, who would you say have been the biggest influences on you, both as a coach and then as a person? Yeah, well, I'll start with a person. You know, first, the biggest influence was really just the situations I was fortunate enough to be in. I know somebody usually thinks of an influence being a person, and I sure I certainly had them. You know, I, I had some good influences as well as some bad ones, unfortunately. Uh, there were folks such as James Dobson at the University of Nebraska that taught me a lot uh, how to coach. Uh, Jared Nesland as well. Uh, of course, Mark Verstegen and the whole atmosphere here at Exos uh, cultivates the kind of person you want to be in a service-based industry. But... You know, unfortunately, I also had some bad experiences, just like anybody else does. I had some coaches that, you know, kind of want you to fit a mold, uh, especially in the collegiate setting out here of, uh, you know, just somebody that kind of gets after the guys in a hard ass, so to speak, and, and I definitely can do that. Uh, but I'm also an enthusiastic guy, and I love to teach. So uh, I think the experiences of getting thrown into the fire really early, uh, before this company absolutely blew up, we were doing military mentorships all over the country, and at the drop of the hat, You'd find yourself at a military base with limited equipment trying to teach 20 Navy SEALs why they should take a day off. And I don't know how many coaches are able to get that kind of opportunity at 24, 25 years old, but all those things really, really, really helped me develop quickly because I just found myself thrown into a situation where 
you had to lock it in. So whenever anybody's in that situation, you know, obviously uh, you try to be as prepared as you can. I, I read as much as I can. Everybody from, you know, just the basics such as SIF, Zatsiorski, Verkashansky, even folks like Brian Mann at the University of Missouri who's putting out some great stuff on uh, variations of auto-regulatory training. Mm. Uh, always listen to Alan Cosgrove, really less from a training side, uh, even though he's got great training stuff, but uh, more so from just a life and, and business standpoint because, you know, that's so much of being a coach is not just teaching people how to train and, and what it does for their performance-wise, but more so how to be a great person and balance out all areas of your life. So when we talk about performance, we're talking about the whole spectrum. Yeah, yeah, that's great stuff. Just touching back to your <clears throat> to the opening question, what 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 actually was like health wise? What was wrong with you? How come your liver and kidneys were crashing? Did they find out what it was? Or sure, oh yeah, uh, to give you the best reader's digest version I can. When I was in high school, a lot of the kids that I grew up playing sports with uh, started getting into drugs. Unfortunately, some pretty hardcore drugs. So yeah. uh, real early in high school, I found myself looking for a different kind of social group to hang out with. But unfortunately. Uh, that problem had spread uh, pretty rampantly throughout all the kids that I had grown up with. Yeah, so yeah. started to isolate myself a bit and really prepare for sport, probably a little obsessively. This was during the 90s, so and, and early uh, late 90s and early 2000s. So this is the time where low fat, low carb, burn as many calories as you can, all this kind of thing was prevalent. Uh, it's funny, we always see uh, all these different fads that come through, but when, when I'm a 16-year-old kid, you know, and I'm training for sport, all I know that's out there is I'm training three times a day, uh, eating as few carbs as possible, and trying to just do what all these magazines tell you to do. And obviously, at that point in your life, you don't really know any better. Yeah. So between that and some problems at home at the time, training became my escape, Robbie. So I started training obsessively. Long story short, ended up stressing my body way too far, lost a tremendous amount of weight. And one day when I was training, just blacked out, fell face first in, uh, in the high school gym. Woke up, had some IVs in me. Uh, they had found that I had just lost a tremendous amount of muscle mass. You know, and really at that time, you know, with, with my friends doing drugs and some problems at home, all of this had manifested itself early on as a depression. And, you know, exercise and training became my way and my escape to focus on that because all I could do is focus on sport. And uh, so about six months in the hospital, getting blood drawn every day, following customized meal plans. Wasn't even allowed to take a shower for two weeks because they thought it would send me into cardiac arrest. And uh, it was all due to just being a young kid that didn't have the right information, you know. And, and, and so that was one thing I dedicated my life to after that is trying to be a beacon of practical, sound advice for people and teaching them the power of, you know, less is more and not following fads and, and understanding that this can be, you know, as the quote says, the dose makes the poison. Yeah. You know, training can be an elixir to the next stage of championship performance in your life, or it can also be that. It can be a poison that ruins you if you, if you don't know and, and have a healthy outlet for it. So uh, that's a Reader's Digest version of it, uh, but that was a big part of uh, what got me in the profession. And, and, you know, I went from really not talking about that a lot when I was younger to, you know, now I go around and speak about it and you'd be surprised at how many athletes and coaches can connect with that same kind of experience yeah well probably looking back on it now it was a blessing in disguise because it was a guru at the end of the day because it taught you so much oh absolutely yeah and I think it just prepares you you know it prepares you because whether you're dealing with high school athletes collegiate or even elite you know one problem we deal with now is with the access of information that's out there you still have an access to terrible information yeah and you know you get somebody that that is is as dedicated as I know your listeners and many of the athletes and clients that we work with are, and they're fed bad information, they only know how to go after it one way, and that's full, that's full go. So that's why you really have to be careful with the information that's put out there and do your own research, and not only that, experiment on yourself to make sure that what you're applying is in the right dose, and even with the right person, because it's really easy for this industry to have that pendulum to go on extreme sides of either spectrum. Yeah, the kind of overreaction, underreaction. Absolutely. You, you've kind of just slightly touched into the next question, which like I, I usually always ask the first three questions to every sort of guest background influence, and then the third one is usually, you know, what are the problems that you see within the strength and condition profession? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, just that, the overreaction, underreaction, and how, you know, all of a sudden somebody can say one thing, 
and everybody's on a bandwagon with it without them necessarily trying it. You know, we see that that can even be pervasive with our interns. You know, they'll they'll come in and, and fewer and fewer people are coming in with real <coughs> experience of even training themselves. And you know, the information they get is from a blog or a website, which again that's fine. But I mean, if you remember back to when you and I probably first started training, you got some information, you took it to the gym the next day and, and you tried it out for a while, and then you were able to form an opinion of it. Whereas now if one person says something, it seems to be the holy grail. And we got to keep in mind that nobody just invents anything in this profession. You may put a new name on it or a new spin on it, but all this stuff has been done before. And all we, the best we can do is be, you know, great students of the game and learn from those before us and, and pass that on, which, which is the second issue, you know, is people being too egotistical. And uh, there's no secrets out there. If you're good at what you do, it's usually because of, how you're doing it, not what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Of course, what you're doing matters, but you know, if you've done your due diligence and read and learned, you know, getting strong today is the same as getting people strong 20 years ago. Getting people fast today, by and large, is, is the same as getting past saying people fast 20 years ago. The stretch shortening cycle, the nervous system, all that hadn't changed. The main thing that's changed is how we manage it, and how we manage it comes down to not just what you're doing, but more importantly how you're doing it and how you're manipulating. So if people just shared more information and realize that we all have enough barriers with the variables out there and, and the athletes and their behaviors that we shared information and, and we're able to work together more, we'd make all we'd make each other's lives a lot easier. It's it's funny, like I suppose nearly the answer to so many things is the most you know, simplistic answer and because it's so simplistic, we just have this sort of innate sort of thing that says, No, it's too simple to be the answer but that that answer of it's not what it's not what you're doing it's how you're doing it like the amount of times i just have to tell people you need sleep just sleep you didn't, you didn't need me to tell you just go to bed on time just go to bed before 10 p.m and they're like yeah i know i know but could, do you think, could you think if i took this supplement i'm like just just get some sleep that's it yeah sure. and it's and it's the same then like all the time oh i, I you know i'm I'm doing deadlifting or I'm doing my core work or I'm doing my mobility work and it's like well show me you're doing it I'm like well yeah you're doing it but you're not really doing it either if you get what I mean again so it's like you know such such a simplistic answer I suppose it's just because recently I've been having to say that to lots of people I'm talking about certain things like it's not what you're doing it's how you're doing it it's all to do with your intent and the actual way you're executing something so it's just good that you know to hear someone else say that because it's kind of been on my mind with other things lately now, to be honest, Robbie, I mean, you're spot on with all that. And that, you know, that's a favorite quote of mine is those who do the common things in life in an uncommon way command the attention of the world. Oh, and, right. you know, I'm a firm believer in that. It's, it's, you know, you've got to find a way to make these things work for you. You know, not everybody, to touch on your point of sleep, not everybody's going to be an early to bed, early to rise person. Some people are going to be, a, uh, you know, even myself, I'm more of a night owl, um, but I still structure my day so that that works for me. You know, you can't, you can't put yourself against the ropes all the time. And that's why, you know, to be honest with you, and hopefully this is beneficial for your listeners, when I first got into the profession, and I think most people do this, I may be wrong, you know, you read everything you can on training and periodization and program design and speed and agility and you absorb it. And you should. You should understand what's out there. But at the end of the day, this profession comes down to understanding and managing human nature. And that's something that the past two and a half years – my interest level has skyrocketed in. And the amount of time I continue, I always stay up on, on any new research that comes out to do my due diligence with uh, you know the strength and performance side. But more and more, I spend most of my time reading about human nature, psychology, the limbic system, all these things that make us who and what we are. Because if you don't have those pieces of the puzzle, it doesn't matter what your program looks like or what your facility looks like. You simply won't you know, I, always, I just think that, you know, you're a great coach if you can get somebody, if you can connect with somebody well enough to get them to do more with a 25-pound dumbbell than another coach can with all the tools and toys that doesn't understand the value of human relationships, you know, and, and that's what coaching is. It's uniting people and purpose in a process, and that's coaching. You know, it's... it's ironic and extremely because if for the listeners here i got in touch with brett through barry solon so me and brett have actually never formally spoken but it's uh it's funny you mentioned human nature because that's kind of currently where i'm at the last probably maybe three years maybe with my own sort of learning of things and i'm holding a book here in my hand called the magical child 
by uh, I always call this guy a hero of mine, uh, Joseph Shilton Pierce, and he's 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 written many other books. I've actually read three of his books cover to cover, and Magical Child is actually one of the older ones. But his whole thing is about understanding human nature, and he speaks about you know the reptilian brain, and then the limbic system, and then the neocortex, and then speaks about you know he's very similar to Bruce Lipton in that they all speak about how the environment shapes the organism and how the environment shapes your genetic expression and when you start to understand that the environment shapes your subconscious mind versus your conscious mind it shapes your genetic expression yeah uh, true 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 epigenetics you know you start to you start to realize why things like empathy and compassion are so important qualities to have because you realize that everybody is shaped by their environment everyone's a victim of their environment victim of their culture and when you kind of understand that as a coach you then can start to you know integrate that in in your in your coaching style because you're going to deal with so many different personalities and then when, when you have that understanding that listen everyone is the way they are for a reason you're going to have that sort of empathy and compassion that will carry over into your ability then to get them to do what you want to do so it's just very again ironic that you're kind of in the same sort of headspace as me like you do you you get to a certain place where you're like shit i know all this fucking science about about periodization and program design but i just can't get this guy over there to care about it like and then you're kind of thinking this guy's a bit of an asshole and then when you when you get into this human nature stuff you're kind of like oh (laughs) there's a whole like other side to this that i don't even know no I, i think you're spot on and you know it's a huge piece especially when you look at the popularity of of monitoring now, you know, in terms of the more and more people are doing it, and it's got tremendous value. Mm. But here's something, and if I were to say one quote in this podcast that may be worth anybody writing down, uh, is you know the most important performance variable of all is people. And if you can't if you can't monitor and manage that, then then we're in a whole host of trouble because it doesn't matter what you got, the people got to care about it. It's got to connect with them, and then you know. There's one, there's an author, two authors of a book called Driven, and the author's last names are Lawrence and Noria, N-O-H-R-I-A. And, and, you know, what they look at is they say, we as humans have four primary drives. And, of course, you can be any mixture of these. It's not like you have to be in one. But the primary drives are to learn, to bond, to acquire, and to defend. And if you look at tribal behavior, if you look at, corporate behavior, if you look at how we are in team dynamics, you tend to see that. You have athletes that can fit in any of those scales, people that like learning more of the why, people that thrive off competition, unfortunately, some people that are more ego-driven, you know, and and then also people that kind of like having their back against a wall and, or, you know, like being around other teammates that have similar drives as them. You see that in how we form relationships. And when they stated that, you know, that was that was an unbelievable point to me where I started looking at my athletes, not only in a sense of what's your vertical jump or your 10-yard or 10-meter dash or, you know, your numbers in the weight room. No, what learning category or motivational category are you? You know, because that's going to influence the drills that I do, how I, how I parry up in the weight room and all those things because it's all about creating an optimal culture so that the program you write in the first place can get done with the right intent. And so between those guys, and, you know, I love Robert Greene. He's, he's the author of The 48 Laws of Power, um, you know, 50th Law, Mastery, Art of Seduction, Strategies of War. And, you know, I'm, I'm salivating because he's actually coming out with a book in, in a year or so called Human Nature. And the amount of research that this guy dives into, um, I wish I could get him to respond to me on Twitter because he doesn't know it, but I promote the heck out of his books because they're just so great. Uh, so when people say, you know, what should I read? I usually give them, you know, one strength and conditioning uh, related text uh, and then one of those books because you just got to understand the environment and, and how things happen and why they happen and how you can be prepared for them so you can help people. Yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> just going back to the drive, learn, bond, survive thing. It's funny, I read another book called Flourishing. by It's actually by an Irish psychologist called Maureen Gaffney and that was exactly in her book as well. So they probably took that from the same research. But even when I get asked about books as well, like... The top three books I recommend are Biology of Belief by Bruce Lipton, which is all kind of about, how, again, how the environment interacts with with, uh, with our genetics to, to then form our genetic expression. So essentially, again, how the environment shapes the organism. 
and then then there's a and it's it's how the environment shapes the organism not just physically but mentally and emotionally so again going back to that subconscious and conscious mind but again it's all about epigenetics how the environment dictates our genetic expression and the other book is then lights out it's all about circadian biology i'm huge in circadian biology like anyone listening to this who knows me like just always will be laughing now because i always talk about sleep and circadian rhythms and then the third one is uh, nutrition and physical degeneration by Weston Price, they were obviously my top three books, and everyone goes, "Where's the strength and conditioning books?" And I'm like, "Okay, just get like, get like core performance or Boyle's book. That'll be a good starting place, and then I'll get you into Westside Book of Methods, and then we'll go to Super Training and Verkashansky after that." Yeah, no, it's those are great, and it's definitely to your point. It's it's that old adage that you know the the teacher appears when the student is ready. Exactly. Right? Yeah, and yeah. Sometimes I I try to jump to the gun and, and and try to tell these interns, "Hey, save yourself some trouble." and learn about these things first and they'll make you a tremendously better coach and they'll help you so much more career-wise and in your personal life and and the other stuff's relatively easy to teach as long as you understand concepts and no matter how much you want to say that they just don't you know then they gravitate to the coach that gives them the fancy training book and you're like oh well you know so hopefully you start to that's how i can always kind of identify interns i want to work with because i i definitely believe in being a mentor um you know, I think that's something, you asked me what was something that could be improved in the profession, you know, more people being mentors, you know, and because, you know, the guiding hand is always stronger than the written word, and I start to find people that I know I can see something in when when I see how they deal with people and how they adjust people, and do they have that it factor, like, I can teach undulating periodization, but I got to teach you how to shake someone's hand and look them in the eye first, or, yeah. you know, in, in here, especially, I guess, because I specialize in fighting in American football, you look at the different socioeconomic factors, and one of the reasons I like American football is less to do with the popularity of the sport, more so to do with the fact that in, in one day I might have to deal with a kid from you know rural Iowa and then also a kid from a broken home in East St. Louis. And I love that challenge of trying to unite those causes, and it sounds like you do too. So please, anybody listening, you know, Robbie just gave you some tremendous resources, and, and by all means, respect the science, but focus the lens on human nature too because it's uh, I, I really think that the information age uh, is always going to be around but it, it's peaked and you know the transformation age as I call it is the next step in performance of how you really transform people's beliefs into unified action mm, brilliant uh, to be honest <laughs> me and you could uh, well, I could definitely keep talking to you about this stuff for, for the whole podcast but just for the sake of the listeners I, I'll move on so uh if brett if, if i was to ask you what what is and i suppose again you've touched on, on some of this already but if i was to say to you what is your overall coaching philosophy or principles that you would abide by you know what are your big rocks yeah no that's great you know i think um i think always starting with you know it's not sexy but foundation is, is such a huge piece foundation and and you know so many people just need that robbie they just need that, and I think we're always willing, we're always so excited to go into what we know in the most advanced program, but the more and more I work with elites, the more I just realize that people need to have a sound plan. You know, you need to really understand, especially as, as seasons get longer competitively, sport-wide, and, and the off-season shorter, really thinking from the other side of things and saying, hey, this all comes back to adaptation. You've got to look at training as nothing more but a means to that, because at the end of the day, we're organisms. What is the nature of this sport and starting from scratch? When I first started writing programs, I did the simple needs analysis. What do I have? Who are my athletes? What do they need to be prepared for? And what are their weaknesses? And really, if you just work yourself through that logic chain, no matter how long you've done this, you'd be surprised at the level of detail that comes out of that that guides your programming. Mm. I really just think that so many people get, get into a rhythm and a habit that they think they know their system, and I'm sure they do, but you've got to always challenge yourself and make yourself stay sharp in that basic needs analysis to guide it. So, you know, starting with a sound needs analysis, understanding the impact of stress, you know, and hey, listen, rest is a weapon, recovery is a weapon, we know this, but man, you've really, really got to push the body to, to get it to change. It just doesn't want to. So you've really got to balance you know, pushing them to their limits, you know, and, and also pulling back. And, and I think sometimes people are getting a little bit too cautious 
uh, you know, they're, they're a little too eager to just follow, hey, three weeks and unload, three weeks and, well, how do you know they need to be unloaded? Are you really watching? You know, what's their nervous system showing you? What's, what's their elasticity like when they're doing their plyometrics? Is, is that reaction time slow? Is, you know, is it, what's that response? You know, all these things will tell you about it because here's the key point. And this is probably the answer to your question in a short sense is everything is a screen. Mm. Everything. People keep wanting to look at just the FMS or just monitoring and just this. You have to look at everything your athletes are doing daily because it really will tell you where you need to be. Yeah. And you can't just follow black blanket recommendations. There's too many variables in this world. So, you know, one thing we deal with at Exos is we have tremendous resources, but at the same time, we have very few coaches at each facility. So, you know, we don't always get the optimal, hey, guys, enter on this date, begs it on this date. We always have an organized fashion of, of pre-testing and post-testing. That's not always the case. We got coaches out of town all the time. And so we've really got to, you know, incorporate testing as part of the training. And that's good because you can do that. You can you can work somebody up to a five rep max and, and have them do as many as possible and see, all right, was that really their 5RM? Do, you know, where are they at now from an auto-regulatory standpoint? Do I need to adjust the numbers? People always want to talk about plyometrics and precise uh, prescriptions. That I mean, that depends. You're at, Robbie, you got to remember, and we have, even in my NFL group, all the 32-year-old veteran that's been in the league for eight years, that's an offensive lineman, all the 23-year-old rookie, all the 28-year-old guy that's kind of in the middle of his career that has some you know, injury history, these guys aren't going to have the same rep and set scheme for plyometrics. What I'm going to look at is, you know, how well they're negotiating that amortization phase because everything you do will tell you something about their nervous system, their strength power characteristics, and their movement quality, and, and you've just really got to adapt. Boyd Epley said it best, the great ones adjust. And that goes for movement, too. I don't mean to be long-winded, but, you know, now you have some coaches that have gone to all these courses – and they have their movement sheet laid out. They know exactly what they want to do. And they come out by telling the athletes, hey, this is what we're going to work on. Let's get started. Well, you're missing a big piece there. How about you incorporate, you know, if, if what you're looking at is their shuffling mechanics, you incorporate into that warm-up or you use the whole part, whole method where you give them an actual drill and you assess how well they move in that drill. Then you break it apart and craft your session. And that, and that goes so much into the art of coaching. So... I just think that needs analysis, everything is a screen, and understanding that it's not only okay to adjust, it is necessary to adjust, are my three biggest rocks in regards to training. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. If we were to just touch into then maybe on um, actual testing assessment and, and screens, what exactly, like, so let's say, you know, I walk in, hi, I'm Robbie, and you go, hi, I'm Brett, and then we talk, and then we, you know, we have some human interaction. But like, apart from that, then, what, what goes on then, Brett? What, what are you going to do with me? Sure. Are you talking about a typical day at Exos, or what would I do regardless? Uh, yeah, let's go with what you do regardless. What, what, what would you do? I'm presuming it's going to be pretty similar to what you do at Exos, anyway. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, different times of year, we'll, we'll tinker with some different things. Um, let's, let's assume I have very limited technology, just because I want this to be as wide uh, appealing as possible, and we're not all fortunate enough to have yeah. all the tools and toys. So what I, what I try to break it down to, Robbie, is profiles. Yeah. So I'll look at a speed or acceleration profile, or again, depending on the sport. So for all the listeners out there, these distances are relative. I'm just trying to give you an idea. Well, I'm definitely going to look at a 10-yard or 10-meter, something short, uh, burst-related that I can really take a uh, look at their acceleration. Then I want to open them up. So for football, you know, that might be that 40-yard dash. I'm not a huge fan of the 40. Uh, I think if people knew the history of the 40-yard dash, they wouldn't be either. But you got to still see what their absolute speed characteristics are. So whether it's 30 meters, 40, you know, what have you, you got to open them up. So a simple uh, speed and acceleration profile. I also want to look at how well they use that stretch shortening cycle because really other than the fight or flight response, the stretch shortening cycle is the most powerful reaction and, and capability we have. Um, so looking at a three-stage vertical jump test, so just looking at how they, well they negotiate their own body weight in a, in a non-counter movement situation. And, and for all the science nerds out there, yes, I'm, I'm aware that there's no such thing as a non-counter movement, but... Uh, just minimizing it as much as we can. Yeah. Um, a counter movement jump where they use that rapid downward arm action or preload. 
and then uh, finally a depth jump where now they've got to negotiate uh, their body weight multiplied by uh, additional uh, length and speed characteristics of bigger impact into the ground and having more to overcome. So the, the speed profile, specific stretch, stretch shortening or power profile, usually look at a rotational characteristic. We'll use a power, uh, a rotational Kaiser power element here. Um, agility, we'll look at agility. So again, make it fit your sport. Um, but for the sake of this discussion, we'll say a simple uh, 5, 10, 5, just change the direction where they run out 5, come back through 10, and then, and then finish through. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll look at some, you know, strength lifts. And, and again, that's going to depend on their injury history. You know, if I'm, if I'm working with youth, obviously you want a foundational lower body lift, such as a deadlift or a squat. Uh, you want a power type movement uh, for you, whether that's a clean or a snatch or, or something uh, different that you may have that works for your system. And then an upper body, you know, upper body. I'm not a big bench press guy. I, I'm just not. I don't. I don't see a whole lot of correlation there. Uh, uh, but it, it is simple, so you can do anything from bench press to push up to pull ups. Anything that just shows you how well they handle themselves, and more importantly, uh, you know, have they been in a weight room before? I think that's something that's that's overlooked. I'm not looking for a meathead, but I'm looking for somebody that certainly knows his way around. So, <clears throat> really, Robbie, you can get as specific as you want. Um, in my jump profile, we also have lateral bounds with two-foot landings and, and all kinds of things that we can assess depending on the person. But if somebody's coming in and you're really limited in time, <clears throat> I think as long as you get a speed and acceleration profile, something that takes a look at their stretch shortening cycle, um, you know, looking at their strength in the weight room, and then obviously, I'm sorry, I forgot the FMS, just looking at assessing joint mobility and stability. And it doesn't need to be the FMS. It can be whatever works for anybody. But as long as you cover those pillars of, of those aspects, I think you're on your way to something pretty good, and you can continue to build out from there. Just keep it simple at first. Just uh, two two little questions I want to ask on that, and this is something I myself and Barry have discussed. Uh, one was absolute speed. Um, there's this kind of concern. I suppose like the answer we came to it depends on who you're dealing with. But let's say someone shows up and you FMS them, and they don't move too well, like they have a crappy FMS. The kind of question is then, you know, is it worth risking doing absolute speed with that person? Because you don't want to test them. And then on the third goal, their hamstring pops off. So right. that's, that's an absolutely, that's a phenomenal question for me. Absolutely not. Absolutely not worth testing it. At least not until that we can clean up those movement patterns a little bit. And, uh, you know, th- that's going to vary on the person. I'm not saying we can't test them for six weeks. I understand athletes come in and, you yeah. know, they pay a lot of money and they want something. They, some guys are very numbers driven. But they're more so results driven, and nobody's going to be happy if they pull something. So, excellent point. You know, you've got to assess all that. You've got to listen. Everything's a screen, right? That's one of my big rocks. So, if you see a situation where it's not ideal, don't don't mess with it. For, yeah. To your point exactly, we've got an athlete in right now, a basketball player. He's only 18, and he's got bilateral tendonitis. I'm not doing the jump profile with him, not right now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, like. I'm simply looking at some basic stuff and, and, and trying to clean up his movement because what he jumps is no, of no concern to me if his knees are on fire and he's not able to play the game. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so that's a tremendous, tremendous uh, point. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't touch on that, but I'm thankful you did. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. As we know, with just for, for the listeners, as both me and you know, with pain, pain changes motor control, so there is no point in doing testing with pain in that in any area the, the, the other question I was going to ask Brett just on the jump profile I actually asked this question on strength coach only just recently um, I don't usually ask a lot of questions on strength coach but uh, it just regards to the jump, prof, jump profile I'm the exact same as you guys I, you know I do non-counter and then counter move and then I do a reactive strength index uh, you know doing a, a depth jump off a box with the, and then taking the ground contact and the height and you know getting the reactive strength index but my question is, do you use it with arm drive or without arm drive, or do you do both? Because apparently the, 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 the Bosco method was with, with no arms, and I got that from Alvar Meal. But some people do with arms, and some, some coach on strength coach said that arm drive apparently adds like 14%. But you know when people throw these figures out, I ask, like, where are you getting 14% from? Like, so. but, <laughs> but just like, do you use arms, and, and if you do, why? Or if you don't, why? And do you just do both? I'm actually just thinking about doing both, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I think I think to touch on your point, I think as long as you're consistent, to me it doesn't really matter. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so yeah, whether sure. you want to use arms or no arms, you know, Albert Meal's been in this a lot longer than I have, so I'm sure he's got a tremendous uh, uh, justification for that, and it's worked for him, and he's a legend. 
Um, at the same time, I've, I've used arms and, and my athletes, again, you got to think from a motor control standpoint, uh, what's the goal? If the goal is me trying to assess their ability to use their stretch shortening cycle and just looking at the jump, and then I tell them, hey, you can't use their arms, now that's a novel task that may mess up that motor system because they're going to think about it a little bit more. Yeah, very true, and, very true. And again, knowing that, that was my, that's kind of my background is um, understanding what's called the constrained action hypothesis and, and internal versus external. If I all of a sudden give them another variable to manage psychologically, I don't believe that I'm really looking at uh, what I'm supposed to be looking at in the first place because I've given them something else to deal with. Yeah. Uh, but again, if that's the expectation and I'm a team coach and that's been communicated to them and they have an expectation there and, and, and we've worked on that prior to the jump, then obviously you manage that variable. So the most important thing is, as you know, Robbie, is manage your variables. Make sure you're really looking at what you're looking at and, and you're not trying to get too fancy or, or change it up too much because you got to lock that in. And for any young strength coaches out there, try it. You know, don't, don't take my word for it or Robbie's or Albert Meals. Try it so you can speak to it because you may come up with something that better than any of us have. And so uh, just quick message there. Yeah, you're, you're speaking my language, Brett, because I'm always forever saying think for yourself. Think yeah. for yourself. <laughs> so uh, come to your own conclusions. Um, yeah. I, you know, I have questions here on program design, periodization, but I, you know, I've had Nicole, I have Brett on the podcast before. I mean, they've, they've touched on program design. And I, I'm assuming, it's probably not a good thing to assume, going off the four agreements the book, but... I'm, I'm assuming your, your program design is very similar to the Exos methodology, you know, regards to, you know, the pillar and then movement prep and then going into your plyos and then your speed work and then explosive block, strength block, auxiliary block. Be pretty similar sure. along those lines. Yeah, I mean, there's some days we'll change it up. You know, I've been influenced by Exos. I've also been influenced by a number of individuals in the collegiate setting. The good news is, uh, you know, Exos methodology is all inclusive. Yeah. So, you know, we can do that as long as we have a justification. We can do just about anything we want as long as it's true to the athlete. Yeah. Um, but just from a bioenergetic standpoint, when you're thinking about the order of exercises performed, you're, you're spot on. You know, you try to do the most neurologically demanding and technical exercises first. first yeah. You build into the, the supporting calves from the strength side to obviously continue to build upon that, that fountain of strength that we all need to drink from in order to, you know, stay hydrated from a performance standpoint, so to speak. And then, you know, you have your auxiliary block or your assistance work, whatever text you want to read. Um, the main thing is people, you know, just remembering that those all feed into one another. Mm-hmm. Generally, again, generally, um, you know, the stronger I am, the more efficient that nervous system is, the more powerful I am, as long as I'm training all ends of the spectrum. Um, you know, and, and if you're using an auxiliary block appropriately, it should round out the program. Uh, you know, it's not just a time... Uh, to do correctives, that, that's a part of it. You certainly can. Um, but usually I try to follow a format where I may do, you know, let's say we're doing a four-exercise circuit in the assistance work. You know, the first exercise may complement something, uh, my primary strength movement, uh, such as, a, a you know, a, a close grip push-up complements a bench press. Yeah. Um, if we're doing an upper push, lower pull. Uh, another exercise might complement the, the secondary strength emphasis. So if if my main pull that day is a, is a barbell RDL, I may be doing a knee flexion-based movement, such as a stability ball, leg curl, or glute ham. Um, and then I'll usually use a corrective. I'll give an athlete a choice. So I tell them, you know, we got your shoulder, your hips, and your torso that comprise your pillar. Here's three choices of exercises. Choose which one, or I'll choose for them based on their FMS. And then finally, I'll do a rotary uh, stability or rotational propulsive exercise. Now, that's just an example I won't use that all the time, but the bottom line is just teaching people that, you know, the assistance block should obviously feed into the strength block. Strength block, you know, helps your power. And, and, and you know what? Joe Ken also has a great philosophy. The other day in our football program, you know, we did a, a very light, clean pull as part of our auxiliary block. And most people really could freak out on that and say, well, that's an Olympic-based movement. What the heck are you doing that so late in the workout for? Listen. As long as you modify the loads and you have an appropriate population, these there's no absolutes here. You know, athletes are going to have to perform explosive movements late in the game with fatigue. I want to teach them how to manage that. So if we're doing that late in the workout, that may be three reps at a very low percentage, but it's still teaching them how to pop. So 
you know, the design, I'm an absolute program design nerd, and, and I've toyed around just about everything. Uh, I look forward to continuing to do that, but it's, it, yeah, it's the basics. You know, attack that nervous system, make sure to work on the weak links as well as their strengths, stress the athlete appropriately, and then uh, get them out of there so they can recover. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like I agree as well, Pro- program design is... You know, it's pretty much cut and dry. I mean, if you look at every, it's always nearly the same. Like, I, I always say to everyone, like, what's the first thing everyone does? And everyone's like, warm up. And I was like, yes. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> yeah, we warm up. And then and I was like, what would we do then? Would we do a slow movement and then explosive? Or would we go with our explosive into our slow movements? And they're like, we'd usually do explosive. Yeah, yeah. We go from faster contractions to slower contractions over the course of the session. <laughs> I mean, you look at everyone, like, you know, Vermeil, Francis, even Olympic lifting programs. They, you know, they generally do the most neurologic demanding stuff first into kind of lesser neurologic demand and more sort of metabolically demanding type stuff as the session goes on so like but the problem i think a lot of people i, I think young coaches they, they kind of lump program design and periodization together and it's just like a mismatch they get confused where you're trying to say no program design is just how you structure the session periodization is the whole organization of the whole sort of training block um, and that's going to be our next question and it is is periodization and i spoke to nick before and nick you know he kind of went into linear versus undulating versus block Personally, myself, yeah, of course, with a beginner, it's not really going to make a difference. But really, uh, but I'm just going to preface what I kind of do, and maybe you can then can, you know, touch on what you do and then maybe yeah, relate back do. to me. But like, what, personally, what I really like to do, and, and I suppose it's only really lately that I've kind of started to kind of say this, but I essentially use vertical integration, which is what Charlie, Charlie Francis used. I, I kept saying I use a block system, similar enough to kind of Verkashansky in that one block feeds into the next, but essentially what I always do is I always emphasize one biomotor quality or maybe two as long as those two biomotor qualities are compatible like in Ishran's work and then I'd always maintain other qualities I would never ever I, I personally haven't toyed around with using training residuals like Ishran's model has but I nearly I always go with an emphasis and maintenance type uh, periodization block now I'm talking about athletes that you know, that actually need a saturation now of a skill to actually get better or to increase their biological output. I'm not talking about obviously beginners who get better, you know, lifting a can of beans like, but, but uh, like what, what would your take be on that, Brett? Yeah, I think that's great. You know, I think, I think one thing to, you know, just kind of part the clouds a little bit is one thing we tend to forget is, you know, it's really all the same thing, even though it has uh, different names. Any, oh, even yeah, if you yeah. look at linear and undulating, you know, none of them are truly linear by nature, right? There's, uh, there's, structural and long-term manipulation of any of these means and methods and uh it's just a matter of what moniker you want to throw on it to differentiate but we're all trying it's all game theory it's all game theory and you know game theory is looking at a problem and using a variety of strategies uh you know both mathematical and otherwise to get to a common end goal and and you know with game theory the, the strategies that we use depend on the other player in the game. And, and in this sense, you know, the person on the other side of the chessboard is, is our own biology and the human body, which has, has pretty much done it all. Mm. So I think what you're doing in terms of the saturation and the variation of, uh, of training modes to really make the most of residuals and, and also build on each other is tremendous. How you do that is obviously going to depend on on sport and the length of the season, you know, Dan Baker, when he was talking about, you know, being in rugby league as tremendously long season. And so he gets to a point where after foundation, you know, they use uh, a variation of auto regulatory, which I think is valuable. There's going to be some people that, you know, are on the opposite end of the spectrum and have a longer, uh, you know, off season. It, it's ironic in, a, in American football. I actually working as a part of Exos have a longer off season with uh, those athletes and the strength coaches do. They only get to see them for about five weeks. So, you know, I'll use a variation of everything when they come into me. When they come in and, you know, they just finished a season in January, uh, they're pretty beat up. So January and February, we set, we start with a simple linear-based block of just restorative means that eventually intensify back into getting them foundationally ready to go back with their teams. Uh, you know, then we'll use uh, – we usually have a six-week block, which I'll break down into two-week cycles where – you know, we work on anything from max strength, which leads into power, which leads into a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, more of a concurrent or conjugate or, or power-based endurance kind of model where uh, they can go in there and, and again, it's, it's about putting out relatively moderate to high weights at, at, at the speeds that they can over a prolonged period of time. And, 
when they get back, you know, then I've got to prepare them now for training camp. Mm-hmm. So they got about five weeks with me. So now I'm going to kind of look at where they're at because I may have an entirely different group of athletes for that time of year. And if need be, I put a little two-week mini block in to get them foundationally ready again and assess where they're at. And then from there, we either go right into strength work uh, to send them in with that nervous system on lock. Or if they're already strong as all get out, we'll, we'll start some power uh, and power endurance or work capacity based stuff along with it to make sure that they're ready for that high tempo of camp, you know. And uh, there, here's one thing, though, when we talk about saturation, and I got a buddy I go back and forth with this about, is, you know, you look at these popular modified west side splits where, you know, they'll have a max effort day and a repetition upper body day and uh, a dynamic effort lower body day. And, and some people would argue, well, that's not enough saturation to really make the most of any biomotor quality and make them adapt. And, and in some situations, I beg to differ. You know, when I have guys that are waiting to get picked up from a team, and we've already been through that whole gamut, and I don't know when they can get a call, and I don't know uh, at what point they have to leave the facility. There's there's no management of that variable there because it can be random. I, I want that because I want to be able to touch on their nervous system, give them just enough in terms of uh, touch on their nervous system on the heavy days, give them just enough hypertrophic stimulus, on uh, you know the higher repetition days, and also still work that dynamic emphasis and force velocity quality on on the other days. You know so, and also if the athlete's never done something like that, it's still a different neurological stimulus. It's variability. So I think you always to surmise all that. You know, meet the athletes where they're at. Understand what the you know the dynamic of the situation is. Do you know how long you have them? Is it variable? Um, and 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 really try to build it off that. But it's all just strategy and making sure that you, you have a strong understanding of where they're at and where they need to be. And, and as long as you use those models appropriately, we're on point. I think it's the people that, you know, use all, leave it all up to the athlete where they get into trouble. Because, you know, even though we have some athletes out there that are very dedicated and want to get into it, you're also going to have some guys that the minute they feel the slightest amount of uh, uh, fatigue or sickness, they're going to want to pull back. When in reality, sometimes that's when we need to push them just an inch more to get that the, the correct amount of adaptation to go into that uh, feed that next residual, so to speak. Does that make sense? Hundred percent. And just to to summarize here for the listeners, as Jim Winner would say, just squat it, deadlift it, push it, and pull it. You'll figure shit out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. I thought about writing a book myself. Maybe we could do it together, and it would, it would be the shortest book on training ever. It says. The title is simply train different, and it says lift weights at different speeds, different ways, different times a year. And, you know, as long as you're doing those kinds of things and, and you're managing that appropriately, uh, people would be surprised at just uh, how easy it can be and or also how challenging. But either way, it's a heck of a lot of fun because we get a – there's no manual on what we do definitively. We all have to do the best we can with the information we got and the situations we have, and that determines your success as a strength coach. Exactly. We'll, we'll call it 642 instead of 531. I'm sorry? Well, I said we'll, we'll, we'll call it 642 instead of 531. There we go. You and, got it. And sell it, and sell it for a $20 ebook. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Uh, energy systems, Brad. I, I know. What are we on here? We're on four, we have 14 minutes left. So I'm just going to touch on energy systems, maybe some motor learning, and then finally on the Exos mentorships and some, some of your, your talks in America. And maybe just finish up with some advice for some of the younger coaches listening. So, just with energy system stuff, I know uh, Exos previously when they were AP, they used to use um, IMET. Do they still use that? Uh, no, we're getting away from it. To be honest, I was with thinking. You. We're yeah. Looking at, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. I, that's why I was asking. So I was thinking you weren't using it anymore. Go ahead. Yeah, that's a project that's in development. We're looking at a variety of different things. Uh, obviously, aware of what's out there. Um, you know, with the different protocols and, and, and everything, we're looking at how we can, you know, continually use power, RPE, and, and a variety of those variables to really make programs that continue to adjust with the athlete's needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not too much able to speak on there, not like we're withholding information, but because that's changing daily, and, and to be honest, that hasn't even been rolled out with staff yet. Um, we're continuing to use different aspects of it, but uh, definitely always looking at the past, same same kind of variable as you look with a max anaerobic speed protocol. You know, what, what are we doing? What's what's our, our true capability? And then periodizing that in a sense that we can you know correlate it with RPE of the guys on there 
just because there's so many variables with heart rate, as you know, Robbie. You know, it can be influenced day to day by what you eat, what you drink, what you, how you slept, uh, minor stress, and so you know, we, we looked at that and really realized that it's only telling us part of the story. Um, is it worthless? Absolutely not. You know, there's there's people that were able to do some great things with it, and uh, but how can we optimize it and continue to improve it, I think, is what we're always focused on. Yeah. Have you ever looked into Joel Jameson's book, Ultimate MMA Conditioning? Oh, absolutely. I'm a fighter by nature, so I'd be remiss if I haven't. I think he does a great job of, uh, of looking at everything he does within those different zones and how he breaks down the energy systems. And, and even though there is a lot of heart rate stuff in that, I think, you know, Joel, Joel, would, Joel would talk about, it, you know, the most important thing is the concepts of how you're managing those days, yeah. those cardiac output days and the different days that he has, not necessarily getting stuck on just one number or variable. I just, I, I think one thing he really brought to light was like, you've got to stop looking at what you're doing in the weight room and what you're doing outside on the turf or the pitch as being separate things. Like, yep. He's like, everything is energy system development. Like, so it was just. And they're not separate to that point either. They're, yeah, you know? they're not, they're not exactly. They're, they're not, oh, the energy system cells aren't separate either. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, man, I deal with that a lot sometimes in boxing. You know, unfortunately, it's such a great sport, but it's so behind the times in training. And, and people think if they're not just doing their long, road work all the time or you know if they if they realize that we're going to do some kind of metabolic circuit in, in the weight room instead or some short interval work you know they just they, they stick so much with what worked and, and that's great you know obviously what worked worked for a reason but sometimes traditions are old enough and you got to blow some dust off of them and be open to to some new means and modalities to take your game to the next level mm, like religion <laughs> <laughs> That's that's gonna be part two of this podcast. Am I joking? Right, yeah. Uh, modern learning. So you, you you've mentioned internal and external queuing, and the amount of times I've heard this, and I know the work of Gabriella Wolf and Nick he's talking about it, and this seems to be, and Barry. Every time I see Barry present now, Barry Solon, he's like, we know that external queuing is better now than internal queuing, and I'm always like, you know, I'm always like, I better ask him about this, you know. So, like, so is it based off her work? And can can you do you know the details of like like why exactly is it better? Like, what did it do? Is there brain okay, studies yeah. on it or whatever? Probably know. Yeah, absolutely. My, the, my first experience with, with all of that was, uh, uh, you know, in 2009. That's when I worked with Jared Porter out of Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, and, and he informed me of Gabrielle work, uh, Wolf's work. And uh, I, I'd actually written an article about it called Talking in Color for strengthcoach.com. I'm sure if I looked back and read that article, I'd cringe now, but... Um, I was a young graduate assistant. I was excited. Uh, you know, there wasn't really anything out there in the coaching world on it on it yet. And I just wanted to introduce the topic so people smarter than me could continue to take it places. And uh, so, you know, the whole idea with internal external, I'll try to simplify it as much as I can, is simply based upon the idea that if people internalize too much, Robbie, it constrains their nervous system and their natural abilities. It dampens that, so to speak. You know, so um, again. It, it, you know, if I get somebody, let's say we're shuffling, we're doing a sh- and I tell them to extend the the, uh, the outside leg, you know, and instead of pushing the ground away from them, which is an outcome-based cue, mm. their ten- their tendency is rather than just be quick and dynamic and, and fluid with it, now they're going to think, and that little amount of thinking is, is going to throw them off just a bit. Yeah. And so the bottom line is that, you know, it all feeds into what's called the constrained action hypothesis that... If I internalize, that nervous system isn't able to self-organize as well, and all of a sudden that movement is less efficient. Uh, it's almost uh, looking at energy leaks and, and metabolic efficiency, right? If somebody runs, uh, if they've got a lot of energy leaks and they're running, they're going to tire out, not necessarily because they're in poor shape, yeah. but they're just expending too much of that resource. So by getting somebody to think of an outcome, such as pushing through the floor, driving the ground away from you, uh, focusing on something outside of their own body, uh, you generally can get a more efficient uh, organization of that nervous system and, and the muscular activity within it and enhance performance. And then at first, you know, I kind of rolled my eyes with that. Uh, not disbelievingly, I, you know, more so the fact that I'd never heard anything like that because I sit there and think, man, I have some athletes that really just don't understand basic position and now I'm just supposed to tell them this. Um, so obviously there's parts of it that are situational, but the research is really conclusive that whether you're looking at advanced circuit to delay performers, uh, my paper was on division one tennis athletes, 
you know, they have it in standing long jump or broad jump and, and vertical jump now. Uh, they continue to bridge the gap both on the field and in the weight room in terms of really how ex how powerful external cues are. Sorry, I was, I was, sorry, I was drinking water there. Um, and how exactly did, did they test for this? Was it, you know, two groups, one got internal cues, one got external cues, and they see who got the better results uh, of the same task, was it? Yeah, so every study will differ, but they're all, you know, between participant, counterbalance, designs, you know, typically what they offer is a, uh, you know, a internal cue, an external cue, and then, you know, just a control group where nothing really is said. So to give listeners another example of my own paper, uh, just so you have that practical example in your head, we're doing a, a T-test, a, a basic agility test for tennis athletes. And uh, some of the terminology here may be off. I don't have the paper in front of me. But, uh, you know, the first, the internal example was run through the drill as fast as you can. When shuffling, focus on extending the uh, knee of the outside leg. So extending that leg, that hip, you know, pushing away from you. Uh, the external cue was run through the drill as fast as you can. When shuffling, think about pushing the ground away from you. And finally, the control example was run through the drill as fast as you can. And so the participants were organized, again, counterbalance design. In different days, we mixed up the order. They were never given any knowledge of it. You know, we used the Brouwer timing systems. That, you know, some of the studies even use a questionnaire to really determine what the athletes were thinking about. Because, um, for example, Robbie, I could tell you the internal or external cue, what have you, but at the end of the day, you could still be thinking whatever you wanted to think. Yeah. And so, you know, to really give an idea of, hey, what were you thinking about there? Uh, many times they use a questionnaire. In my study, they didn't. I did not. Uh, this was my first study I'd ever done, so back off. <laughs> and, uh, but... You know, being able to look at those things and measure them, whether it's through timing gates, whether it's through Vertec, whether it's through, you know, uh, accelerometers, whether any of that, what you typically find is enhanced performance and even these elite performers. And then you see it, you know, the more you practice with it when you know how to do it with athletes. I, listen, I was assessing somebody on broad jump the other day, and I basically gave them a control condition of, you know, telling them, you know, here's your markers, here's the tape, you know, let's, let's get here and see what you got. And then after that, simply going up to him and, and saying, hey, you know, focus on jumping to that wall out there. You're never going to get to it, but just focus on that. You know, and, and you'll see it. These athletes are incredibly efficient at visualizing. And, and if they can just take that novel task and think about it in a different way, it, it's powerful stuff. You know, it's, it's no different than when you communicate, you know, to an athlete what an exercise may do for him or her as opposed to just saying get in the rack and put that bar on your back you know you have you you influence their intent and how they organize that hmm. don't think of a white elephant yeah right right yeah and you know that that's a part of it right if you tell people not to think about something they they generally will so it's all in how you say it and yeah there's yeah. tremendous research out there again and i'll be happy to forward it if you want to distribute to your listeners but gabrielle wolf dr jared porter uh, you know, they're just more and more every day produced on it. You can find a lot of it in the, uh, the journals out there. And so, again, I'm not an absolutist. Am I saying it works every time and it's going to make your program gold and you're going to be the richest man in Ireland? No. I'm saying it's a powerful tool that has scientific background in a variety of realms. And if you're not using it, you should be for nothing more than just to even experiment with it and develop your own ideas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because actually it's, it's, you know, you just kind of said what I was going to say there. I've, I've been using it too, both, you know, external and, in, well, I suppose I use more internal cues before I heard external. I suppose one, let's say, on if we're doing like a backward reaching thing like that, if in the warm-up, what, what I say now is like, you know, reach your fingers to the fence and reach your heels back to me. So like they're, you know, they're having to, it's outside their body. But like, sometimes an internal cue of make your body as long as possible seems to work for other people so it's kind of i've seen, you know seen it both ways but it's i think too like we i think a lot of coaches too we do you we or we had been using external cues like i know myself in acceleration you'd be like push the ground away push the ground away or shuffling push the ground away you know you'd say that or on deadlifts drive the floor away with your heels or you know or on the bench press push yourself away from the bar so you know we kind of were doing it already to a certain extent but maybe we're using too many internal cues on other stuff yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it goes back to simplicity. You know, it's kind of, you know, when I come speak in Ireland, 
you know, there's not going to be a bunch of people that want to see me go up there and regurgitate textbooks and all this. There's one. There's people that want me to make the information meaningful to them, and and that's what you're doing with the external cues. You're you're illuminating them to a different way that they can perceive a task. And if they don't have to sit there and, and complicate things, why do it? Uh, again, if you have a more analytical athlete, by all means, you know we're in we're in a different field here. Like I said, there's no manual, and you know that. It sounds like. You embody it daily, but the power of visualization and the power of analogy and the power of metaphor are three things that I believe take coaching and learning to the next level. And, and you know, Nick Wiggleman's a good friend, and he always jokes with me. He goes, "Man, I don't know where you come up with some of this stuff, but it works." You know, and, and Nick does a great job of it as well. But you know, sometimes it, it manifests itself in a bad joke or you know, a metaphor, analogy that. Some people may sit there and say, what the heck did he just say? But listen, as long as our athletes are learning and, and it makes sense to them, or more importantly, they remember it, God bless it, because I need them to remember that. It's not what they're doing with me that, that matters by itself. It's, it's what they can remember on the day of competition and how they can use those strategies when it matters most to them. It, was, it, was it you then who came up with the, the spaghetti analogy? You know, when you're sprinting, throw, the, throw spaghetti, or spaghetti behind you. <laughs> no, that wasn't me. I, I don't know who that one was. Oh, that, that, one was, that one was really funny when Nick was, you know, throws spaghetti behind you and, and he was like, it works. It really works. You'd be surprised, man. If people came and watched us coach, he'd sit there and, you know, they wouldn't know if it's, uh, uh, you know, obviously I think they'd see some great coaching I'd like to think, but they'd also think that they're almost at an improv comedy show because some of the things we're saying and, and we have fun with it, you know, and, and some of it works and you keep it, some of it doesn't, you throw it out, but... Uh, you know, the main thing is it engages the athlete and gives them some tools and, and, and let's do it, especially because research. And that's one thing that's great if you ever have the chance to communicate with a guy, especially Jared Porter at uh, Southern Illinois. Is he's always looking for that next idea of how to test this. And that was one of the things that I actually switched advisors in grad school because, you know, I knew that he had consulted with many different sports teams and I wanted somebody that had been there and wasn't just preaching science at me, but was saying, hey, like, you know, we, we use this, and, and it's worked, and he's a fantastic guy, and so if anybody's looking for somebody to reach out to to get more information, uh, please look him up. All right, Brett, we're going to close up here now, so what we're going to touch on first is just advice and resources to some of the listeners. I know you've spoken about some of the stuff earlier on with, with uh, Human Nature. Maybe if you want to give some resources on that again. I know you were talking about Robert Green stuff. Um, advice to maybe some of the younger co- well all coaches but I suppose kind of those up and, young, up, up and coming coaches and uh, then we'll talk about the Exos phase 1 mentorship that's coming to Ireland and some of your speaking arrangements that are coming up over in the United States so if you want to start off maybe with some advice and resources to the listeners yeah so I have some resources I know everybody's probably you know got their pens handy and they love resources so anything by Robert Green, but most importantly Mastery 48 Laws of Power Mastery is a tremendous book about how some of the best in the world and of all time, what their process was like and how it wasn't all success and and how everything such as social and emotional intelligence as well as respect for their craft and those who came before them really helped them make them great. And it gives practical and historical examples of how you can use it. It's the first book I recommend any intern or uh, just anybody reads. Really, I've read it twice. 48 Laws of Power because it's important that you understand how history and just what's going on around us can influence you because that book's not written as a how-to to live your life it just says these are things that happen these are you know the politics you may have to deal with these are people and situations you might find yourself relating to and, and how they how they played out in history and how you can be aware uh, you know strength finders by Tom Rath I think it's silly if we're always sitting there thinking you know, how can we influence others without knowing first what is influential about ourselves? So Strengths Finders is a great way of helping you hone in on maybe what your characteristics are as a coach that make you unique and how you can leverage them. Uh, you know, obviously the basics in regards to training, uh, super training is, is, is huge. You know, the science and practice by Zatsiorski, uh, Every Day is Game Day, Verstegen, Boyle's books, you know, Anything that's out there, people have probably heard that a million times, but that, that all leads in my, my advice, you know, is don't just focus on the science, focus on people, focus on what makes you unique and individual, uh, an individual and, and how you can leverage that, focus on how you can build people from the ground up, not just programs, 
uh, make it unique, be a mentor, pass it, pay it forward. We all have busy lives. Uh, we all have multiple things to deal with, and that's no excuse for just going through this life without building the next young great coach who's going to touch lives. That butterfly effect is real. Uh, so, so those are my two biggest pieces that I'd really like to leave people with because I think that's I think that's important that we continue to create more great coaches in this field. Ah, uh, the butterfly effect. Yeah, I think it's great. Um, and then Exos mentorship in Ar- in Ireland coming up in August. Do you want to maybe touch on that? Yeah, absolutely. Phase one, I'll be out there uh, coaching, teaching, having some fun, learning from you guys as well so that's august 18th through the 21st barry and i will be out there uh that's going to be at uh the nada location unit 11 at rosemount business park in valley cool in dublin oh you learned you learned that off well brett what you learned that off very well oh did i all right good i was nervous about that i, I don't want to i didn't want to botch in disrespect so no, that's that was, okay <laughs> that was great you hear usually most americans think that ireland's in the uk for christ's sake listen i'll put a lot of that stuff in the show notes particularly you know the links to um the exos mentorship in ireland and the, the one in australia for any guys from australia that might be listening and uh, if i can link up the the, the the talk you're doing with the nsca i will as well so that's it for today's show uh brett thanks a million for taking taking an hour just over an hour of your time to talk to me and talk to the well not talk to the listeners but talk to me and let the listeners hear what you had to say so i really appreciate it just um Stay on the line for just an extra 30 seconds while I wrap up this and I'll just say my good luck to you and, and, um, and uh, we'll uh, talk about what we're going to do when you get over here. Pro- we'll do. Thanks, more, more, more than likely, we're going to get you very drunk. But uh. <laughs> So, guys, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for your support. Keep downloading the podcast. For the ISEI members, um, You know, keep interacting on the form. For people who aren't an ISEI member yet, get your ass onto it the form is starting to really get going now. lots of great information up there like podcasts like this so um, everyone else listens to this this is up my own podcast again thanks for your support keep downloading podcasts and on iTunes please leave a review because it really bumps us up so take care guys talk soon stay strong mm-hmm.